Lord, what an appropriate way to approach your word after having just sung about how majestic and huge you are, incomparable, indescribable. Lord, we, we only get a taste, a small portion of who you are. What you've revealed to us is for us and for our children, but the things that are hidden belong to you, and there's more of you for us to understand and to know. And Lord, what a, a beautiful thought that we would come now to your scripture and say, Lord, teach us more of you. Who are you? How can we know you better? And Lord, we thank you for having inspired this word for us, left it here for us, and given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand what he has inspired to be written. What a glorious thing you've done, Lord. May it bring you great worship and great joy and a lot of glory. Uh, Lord, we uh, want to pray for the Bohannons today as both of them have had surgery this week. Uh, Father, we pray for David's shoulder, that you would continue to knit uh, all of those things back together, uh, recover his strength, and we thank you for his servant's heart, that even Saturday he was out back working. Um, and Father, for Melissa, uh, Lord, I am grateful for how quickly the doctors diagnosed what the problem was with her, that it went from, oh, we'll replace a valve in a few years to quadruple bypass surgery the next morning. Lord, this is a mercy that we have the capacity to do something like that. And so I'm grateful that you exercised that, that avenue of common grace uh, for Melissa, for her behalf, that she would be restored. And uh, Lord, I thank you that the miracle of having a bed open and all of those things in the middle of a pandemic, Father, you truly worked all things together for her good and for your glory. And so we pray for uh, the healing of the Bohannons, that you would uh, knit both of their bodies back together and, and restore them to us soon. Father, we're grateful that Jeannie is able to join us this morning. Thank you for the miraculous work that you've done in her uh, through the, the common grace of the hospital, and we pray that you would continue to restore her health and her strength. Father, we pray for Joanne, that you would uh, be with her and, and strengthen her as well. Thank you for Trina's recovery, and we pray that you'd be with her and strengthen her body as well. And Lord, as we approach this season of Thanksgiving, uh, Lord, I pray for uh, families that will be united, um, for um, people who will not be with families who might be alone. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would stir in the hearts of all your people a, a genuine spirit of thanksgiving, not just for turkey and football and, and uh, cans of uh, cranberry sauce, but Lord, for the miraculous gifts that you've given us. The, the great, wonderful things that you've bestowed on us. Lord, may we thank the right person, and that's you. And so, Lord, we, uh, we turn now to your word, and we ask for uh, your Holy Spirit to bless it, to illuminate it, to help us to understand, to grasp, and most importantly, Lord, to obey. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I think one of the best, probably maybe my favorite Clint Eastwood Western films is uh, The Outlaw Josie Wales, came out in 1976. And uh, the story of The Outlaw Josie Wales is he was a Missouri farmer and uh, some Union soldiers, and there's a question if they were really Union soldiers, show up and they kill his family. And so now Josie is on the run. He is an outlaw seeking revenge is what the movie is about. Sounds pretty horrible so far. But as he's traveling, he picks up more and more people to travel with him, even though he doesn't want anybody with him. He keeps adding people to his party. And the first person he meets is an elderly Indian named Lone Wadi. And the way that they are introduced is Lone Wadi has just stepped out of his house into the clearing in front of his cabin, and he's got his long rifle raised, and he hears horse, feet, horse beats coming through the woods, and he's tracking. And when the horse breaks into the clearing, there's nobody on it. And so he tracks across, and once the, ca the camera swings, there's a pistol right at his head. 
It's Josie Wales. And they have a dialogue. That, that's one of the best things about Outlaw Josie Wales is the dialogue is fantastic. And one of the things Josie says, you got to hear this in a Clint Eastwood voice. I don't do it particularly well. He says, I didn't think it was supposed to be easy to sneak up on an Indian. And so uh, Lone Wadi, who was played by Chief Dan George, says, um, white men have been sneaking up on us for a long time. And he kind of goes through the history. And so as they're talking, one of the things they say is that they, they both seem to have uh, the same thing in common. They can't trust the white man. And so as, as Lone Wadi is talking, he turns and the gun's gone and so is Josie. They just, he walked away and sat down on the porch. So the relationship you see is these two men had guns pointing at each other and then Josie just walks away. He doesn't even feel threatened anymore. Um, so that, that's the kind of relationship they have. Now later in the film, they pick up some more people in their party. So they go to a town to get provisions. And the scene is Josie is carrying a bunch of parcels in his arms. And as he's walking, this uh, snake oil salesman recognizes him and goes, oh my gosh, it's Josie Wales. And Josie stops. And the camera pans. And off to his right are four Union soldiers. These are the people who have been hunting him. And so they're just standing there looking at each other. And he's got his arms with these packages. And again, one of the best lines in the movie, got to hear it with a Clint Eastwood voice. He looks at him and he goes, well, you're going to draw those pistols or whistle Dixie? And so they stand there, and there's a tense moment. That's one of the great parts of filmmaking in this is the, the tension they build by just nothing happening. So they're staring at them, and all of a sudden you see one of the, one of the Union soldiers reach for his pistol. And Josie drops the, the power soles and <laughs> kills three of them in a shot. And then there's a beat, and you hear a, a fourth shot, and the fourth Union soldier falls into the frame. And so as... Uh, as the camera pans over, you've seen Lone Wadi standing there with the gun, and he puts it away. He shot the fourth soldier. So as they've left the town, and they're heading back to their, their party, they're riding across this open plain, and they have a bit of a dialogue. And so um, Lone Wadi says, how did you know who was going to shoot first? Josie Wales says, well, the one in the center, he had a flap holster, and he was in no itch and hurry. And the one second from the left, he had scared eyes. He wasn't going to do nothing. But the one on the far left, he had crazy eyes. Figured him to be the first one to move. Lone Wadi says, how about the one on the right? Josie replies, never paid him no mind. You were there. And just because this is such great filming, the camera cuts and you see them riding towards the horizon. And it's just a little bit longer than it should be. And you figure it's about to fade out. And then Lone Wadi says, I could have missed. And that's the kind of relationship they had. That's that's this... this um, relationship, they, they had met each other with guns pointing at each other, and yet there's this intimate trust. And, and they count on each other to do the right thing. So remember why we started on the book of Philemon. Um, I said that what I'm seeing in the broader group called evangelicalism, we're beginning to see fractures, and people beginning to split up, and there's people who are arguing and, and not getting along. And tragically, there's a new one this week. Um, Marvin Olasky is the editor-in-chief of World Magazine, um, and he has been at World since, I think, the, the 70s. He's been there for a very long time, and he has announced that he's going to retire early from uh, World Magazine. Uh, what Olasky started, his, his approach to journalism, was he wanted what he called biblically objective journalism, and that is regardless of the party, regardless of the, the political uh, leanings, what is absolutely true is the Bible. That is our objective standard of truth. 
And so he approached the news from that perspective. So there were times when he would criticize the Republicans and the Democrats because they weren't living up to what he held as, as biblical truth. And that was the model for World Magazine. Well, without asking him, the board of directors of World Magazine started something called World Opinion. And so Olavsky said, I am not interested in the project of conservative opinion magazine. And he's retired. He's stepping down. And there are at least two or three other senior editors at World that are stepping down for similar reasons. So this is another picture of that division that we're seeing. And it, it's tragic. It's sad. It shouldn't be happening. But it is. And so we're looking to the book of Philemon to hopefully show us how can we get along when we don't necessarily agree on everything. And, and what we see is there's this major, huge issue that Paul is going to address with a friend. His friend is not living in accordance with the scriptures. He owns a slave, and he's going to address that for him. So that's what we've been approaching the book of Philemon as. What we said is it's a picture of Christ's family. In other words, it's a snapshot in time. We don't know what happened after it. We're not sure exactly what happened before it. It's this one picture. And so what we've been doing for the sermon series is we've been stopping and kind of focusing in try to understand the image that we're looking at, get as, as clear an understanding as we can. Then we have to step behind it and say, what is the theology? What is the truth behind what's going on here? What is it that's driving Paul to do this? Why is this happening this way? Then once we get that, we can bring it forward and apply it for us. So that's, that's our approach. That's what we're going to do. So you remember the first week, what Paul did in the opening of the letter is he remembered the good. He, he looked to Philemon and he remembered all the good things that Jesus Christ has been doing in Philemon. He reminded himself, he reminded Philemon, he reminded the church in his house that God has been at work in Philemon. And then last week what we saw was when he asked, when he put out the, the big ask, I want you to release Philemon, what he did is he did not appeal to law or rule, but he appealed to the heart. He was trying to get beyond what was it that was driving this and get to the real issue, get to the heart of the issue. So in this last portion of the letter, we're going to see Paul kind of wrap it up. And what he's going to do is, as he approaches Philemon in this final section is he is expecting godliness. And so that's his final step is to expect godliness. So let's take a look at the first part, beginning of verse 17. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus, your slave, your runaway slave, as if he would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So the first thing that Paul does is he's, he's recognized that something, there is something between Philemon and Onesimus. He doesn't try to paper over it and act like it didn't happen. He confesses there is strife between them. Now, the way he words it, some people take that to mean, well, Philemon stole from his master. And that was fairly common with runaway slaves is they would take cash or, or you know, something they could sell as they left. And that's possible. But isn't it frustrating? It doesn't explain it. That's one of the things we have to be humble with the book of Philemon because it doesn't give us all the details we want. We wish it did, but it doesn't. Another thing that might be going on here is it could be that Philemon is a slave. Or I mean, uh, Onesimus is, is Philemon's slave because he owes him a ton of money. Maybe he got into debt for something. And he's, there's no way that he can pay him back. So the only way to pay off his debt is to be a slave. And so Paul is saying, whatever he owes you, the rest of it, I'll pay it off. We don't know. What we do know is Philemon seems to have something on Onesimus. And Paul is saying, putting himself forward, I will put myself in this place. And then he picks up the pen and says, I'm writing this with my own hand. It's kind of like a contract, right? It's, it's not good until you sign it. 
So once the contract is signed, he's, he's, he's pledging himself in that. So that's kind of the picture. What's going on just behind that picture? Well, what I think we see happening here is Paul is acting extraordinarily Christ-like in this. He's stepping up and he's saying, if he owes anything, I take that burden on myself. I will pay the debt. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. We owe God a debt of obedience that we can never repay. Even if from this day forward you are perfect and never miss a beat, never sin again, you still have a history of debt behind you that you can't go back and make up. It's impossible. So what Jesus has done is he has stepped in and he says, I will take all of their debt upon myself and I will cancel it. I will pay their debt. Whatever they owe you, Father, charge it to my account. And you hear that in in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our debts by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what, what Jesus has done is he has come in and he said, Lord, I want to, I, Father, I want to win a people to ourselves. I want a people for us, but they have this outstanding debt. And so what I'm going to have to do, Father, is I'm going to have to step in and pay what they owe so that they can be with us. So God doesn't just blink and make it go away. Paul isn't saying, hey, Philemon, you know, you should just write this off, man. I think you can get it knocked out for your taxes if you do it right. He says, I will bear the burden. I personally will take that burden on. He, he's acting Christ-like. So Jesus came in and he paid the debt. He, he didn't do it just by waving his hands or just by saying nice things. He took on a human nature, including a physical body with blood. So as Paul says in Acts chapter 20, Paul is telling the Ephesian elders, be careful uh, and pay attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. We have been blood purchased. Jesus has paid the debt. And so what you see Paul doing is stepping up and being Christ-like. He's, he's acting like Jesus in this. Is I recognize there's a struggle between my brothers, and I'm going to step in, and I'm going to absorb the loss. That's what we're called to do. That's what it means to be born again. Remember in Romans 8, 29, Paul said that for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they may be the firstborn among many brothers. We have been born again. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. Paul is acting like Jesus in this. Because that's the only way to reconcile these two who are at at odds with each other. Colossians 3.10, And put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Brothers and sisters, when you approach somebody within our family, within our tribe, who we're having problems with, remember two things. They're born again and so are you. Remember that Jesus Christ stepped in to pay a debt. He didn't demand to be restored. He didn't demand to be repaid or anything. He paid the debt. So as you enter into a discussion with somebody, you can say, I am willing to come and suffer loss for this person. I'm not going to have to look cool and smart every single moment. I want the person, not the argument. So we can come in and we should expect godliness first and foremost from ourselves. 
Look to it for yourself. Am I being hating like Christ? Am I, do I see myself conform to Christ's image in this discussion with this friend of mine or this family member or this person I know on the internet or whatever it is? And if you don't, be afraid. And let the fear maybe shake you free and go, oh, I better back off. How would Jesus do this? How, how would Paul behave like Christ in this? So that's, that's what Paul begins with. And then he, he, why does he say this thing about, I, Paul, write it with my own hand. I will repay. Well, how does that tie in with Christ? Well, Jesus didn't just come and do it. He promised way back in Jeremiah that there would be a new covenant. And this new covenant would come. And this new covenant would be that he would inscribe the law on our hearts, that he would take away our sins, that he would remember our sins no more, that everybody in this new covenant from the least to the greatest would know God. And that's the covenant that Jesus came and made, and he made it in his blood. So it's a, a covenant is a rock-solid promise, a promise enacted and shown to be solid and true. Does God need to have a covenant to be faithful to himself? God could never lie. He could never contradict himself. He doesn't make covenants for himself. He makes covenants for us so that we can see and we can believe and we can trust. So when Paul says, I write this with my own hand, it's like Jesus coming saying, I am I'm making this new covenant, which is in my blood, poured out for you. That's how sure you have this promise that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So be conformed to the image of Christ, even when it's difficult. Then after that, Paul says, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So what is that, that kind of an enigmatic statement here? He says, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Like, did Paul jump in front of a bus and, and save uh, Philemon? I, I think what it probably means is Paul preached the gospel to Philemon too. And so you owe me yourself. The, the new you, this, this person who's being um, recreated in the image of Christ, you got him because of me, because I came and preached to you. So don't forget, I'm, I'm taking on this debt, even though you owe me, in a way of speaking. And then he says, I want some benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. Remember at the beginning, he talked about refreshing the saints. He's, he's just saying, Philemon, be true to who you are, pointing back to what Christ has been doing in Philemon. I want more of that. That's what I'm saying. Refresh my heart in Christ. So when we look for godliness, when we expect godliness, the first place, the first place you expect it is in yourself. And if you don't see it, that's something you need to address before you go and try to take that, that log out of your brother's eye. Or that speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own first. So the next thing that Paul then says is verse 21, 21 and 22. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, that I, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Don't skip past this. Confident of your obedience. I, I have looked at myself. I'm checking to see if I am growing in Christ-likeness. Now I'm looking to you, brother, and I'm expecting you to grow in Christ-likeness. Now this actually is part of the picture. Remember we said last week there was part of the photo that was a little out of focus and a little fuzzy and we needed to do some digging on it. This week, it's not out of focus. It's just a little dim. It's a little dark, kind of in a shadow. And so we need to do a little digging here. Confident of your obedience is huge. There's a lot behind this. Now, remember that Philemon, or Paul is not saying, Philemon, 
you have multiple good options in front of you and I would like you to make the best choice. That's called wisdom. That, that's when you don't have a yes or no or right or wrong. You have multiple good choices and wisdom will say, which one is the one that you choose to do? Based on everything you know about God, about yourself, about the current situation. Paul doesn't say, choose the best option here, Philemon. Remember what he said previously in, in verse 8. He says, I am bold enough to command you to do what is right or appropriate. You don't command somebody to, to be wise, command them to make the wise decision. You entreat them, you beg them to. What you command and what you expect obedience to is a rule, a law, a, a, a standard. So what rule or law is Paul expecting Philemon to obey? That, that's a difficult one. The issue at hand is he owns a slave and Paul expects him to release him. And one of the critiques of the scripture is why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Why does the Bible never outlaw slavery? And it's a difficult question. I, let's dig into this a little bit. This is where we're going into a little bit of that shadow. The Old Testament never said you shall not own a slave. It never said you shall own a slave. What it did say is if you own a slave, this is how you treat them. And about the closest we ever get to them, to the Old Testament saying you shall not own a slave is Exodus 21.16 forbids what's called man-stealing man or kidnapping. In other words, you can't go take somebody and say, now you're my slave because I just beat you up. And, and, and other than that, there were rules about how you treat your slave. If you knock your slave's tooth out, you got to let him go. Um, you know, those kind of things. But it never comes out and says, you shall not own a slave. Well, surely we can turn to the New Testament and get a better answer, right? It's, it's better there. Actually, it gets a little worse. It gets a little bit more struggle of a struggle here. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, everyone should remain in the condition in which he was called. He's talking about marriage, if you're married or not married. But then he goes on, were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. He says, if, he doesn't say if you are a slave, well, that's wrong. The Bible clearly condemns that and you should be released. He says, well, you know, if it works, get out of it if you can. And then to make it even more complicated, 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then there's a handful of other ones that are similar. Ephesians 6.5, Colossians 3.22, 1 Timothy 6.1, and Titus 2.9 say very similar things. So this is one of the critiques, especially modern day, is, is your, your barbaric ancient scriptures actually promote and, and support slavery. So what is Paul telling Philemon that he must obey and he could be commanded to do if the scriptures don't forbid slavery? That's a tough question. That's a difficult one. I think what we have to do here is look at what is driving Paul to say, Philemon, you know what to do and you're not doing it and I'm wanting you to do it. What is the good that he's supposed to know? What theology what biblical revelation is behind Paul's impetus that says, you can't own Onesimus. You can't. And then to beg him to do what is right of his own free will. Well, I think what we have to do is, is consider a broader swath of biblical theology and then bring it to bear here. And then what we'll find out is this actually does condemn slavery and says you can't own slaves. It, it's the verse that, that we got. It's not the one we wanted. We wanted a clear statement, thou shalt not, the 11th commandment, thou shalt not own slaves. We didn't get that. Instead, we got this. So what theology is driving this? What's behind this? 
Well, I think the first thing is the imago Dei. This idea that all human beings are equal, that we are all equally created in God's image, that we all share something called human rights and human dignity is revolutionary within biblical theology. In ancient Israel, the other kingdoms, they didn't have any idea that, oh, you're a human being. Well, you're worthy of, of honor and respect. You know who got honor and respect? The king. Why? Because he was almost divine, or in some cases he was divine. Everybody else was there to serve him. There was no equal rights. There was no liberty. It didn't exist. Then Christianity comes along. Then there's biblical uh, Israel comes along and says, no, God said in the, first, in the beginning of his Bible that we are all created in his image. All of us are created in his image. There is no king mentioned in, in those first verses. All of us are the same. And then when you get to um, uh, Genesis chapter 9, you see uh, Noah's family. And after the flood, they go out and they fill the earth. In other words, all of those different people groups out there, all those different types of people, they're all made in God's image. And, and it's not Adam is made in God's image and Eve is kind of second class. It is they're not in God's image until the two of them are together. This is, you, we take it for granted. You, you hear people on the left talk about human rights. Where do you get human rights from? It doesn't come out of history. It comes out of the scriptures. It is a biblical concept that we have human rights. They cheat and they steal it from us. Thank God that they do. The, the opposite would be chilling if we didn't have human rights. So that first idea that Paul is exercising here or is assuming that's sitting just behind the picture is imago Dei. We're all created in God's image. But God then goes a little further with that. What is the, the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it, and it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Time out, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? You remember his answer? Everybody. How can you love your neighbor? How can you exercise the second greatest commandment in loving your neighbor if you take all the fruit of his labor? If everything he does is only to serve you, he, he gains no benefit from the labor that he has. That is not loving your neighbor. How can you love your neighbor if you restrict your neighbor and say, uh, I tell my neighbor go, or my slave, go here, and he goes there. I tell him, come here, and he comes here. I tell him, do this, and he does it. How can you love your neighbor if you restricted his freedom? That, that's, that's out of line with this idea that we are all created equal in God's image. So I think this is some of the, the impetus behind it. There's another one we've heard recently. I'm hoping you remember this. It wasn't that long ago. Philippians 3 or Philippians 2. Anybody remember Philippians? Book of the Bible, preached a little while ago? Yeah, okay, good. Um, in in uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also the, to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Can Philemon look at Onesimus and say, I consider you as more significant than myself. Now wash my feet, get my dinner ready, go serve, and, and you know, when, when I'm done, maybe you can get something to eat. It's impossible. It's out of harmony with what Paul has been teaching about what it means to be human beings. So it's, it's impossible to do this. There's this theology behind it. So what Paul is saying is, based on everything I've taught you, Philemon, I want you to do what you know to be right, and I want you to do it from the heart, not because I commanded it, though I could command it. So that's, that's the theology behind the picture. How, does that, how do we apply this? 
with tremendous care. When you're having a discussion, a lot of the dialogue that's going on with evangelicalism is not over theology. We still largely agree with our theology. A lot of the discussion that's going on, a lot of the fighting and the, and the fracture that's happening within evangelicalism is over social issues. How do you handle the questions of race? Is it, is it something that needs to be addressed? How do we handle sexism? And, and all of these different things, these huge questions that are boiling in society. And so what we have to do is we have to do pretty much what Paul is doing here, which is to look at them, step behind them and say, well, what's the theology here? Not what's the social friction going on, but what is the right answer? We need to be Marvin Olasky and say, the Bible is the absolute truth. The political parties, the, the political wings, they both need to be measured by this standard. Now, the problem is, when you don't have a clear chapter and verse you can cite to somebody, what do you do? Because they're going to go, show me in the Bible. That's where you have to take care. So when we approach it, the, the way Paul is approaching this question with Philemon, we have to be very careful with it. And we have to say, let's look at what the scriptures say. What, what is the Bible telling us on this issue? Now, how do you think that applies in this case? And don't forget the things that we've learned before. You're reaching for the heart. You want to win the person, not the argument. You need to remember that this person is born again in Christ and that there, there's a work that's been going on in them. And then you come to the scriptures. You come to the, the, the equal footing of the scriptures and say, let's discuss this. And you have to be very careful because since the, the um, temperature has turned up to 11, we're, we're practically boiling over. People are going to immediately fly off the handle. And so it takes great care. But you know what? You're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Th that's tremendous news. You have the capacity. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ. You can do this. You can take the fight. You can take the, the offense of the other person. You, you can bear those wounds for them and say, I still love you and I want to discuss this if it's possible. So that's how one of the ways that we can heal is we can look to what Paul has been teaching us, what he's just modeled for us, this godliness, and say that's the approach I want to take. Can we hold this ship together that's called evangelicalism? Now, I don't pretend to think that me standing in this little pulpit in this little church in this little town is going to make a big difference. I don't see a lot of these problems within our body. I don't see a lot of huge political fights going on. But we're part of that ecosystem. And therefore, we have to have a role in it. We're, we're just in there. So let's have this mind, which is yours in Christ. So now the last section, uh, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. That throws a monkey wrench into my works. My thought is Paul is in prison in Rome. And that's where Epa that's what Onesimus went to was to hide out in Rome. Epaphras was not in jail with, with Paul in Rome. He was there pretty much alone. He had friends working with him. So when did Epaphras go to jail? And this is what lets me off the hook. I don't know. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. But whatever it is, is these two are in prison together. Epaphras is in jail with, with Paul for some reason. So maybe it is Ephesus. It doesn't ultimately matter. That's another great blessing is you can say what has been revealed to us is ours and what is hidden belongs to the Lord. So we'll find out in eternity, I hope. Then he mentions Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So 
it would be really interesting to dig into each one of these people and kind of trace their history and understand who they are and stuff. It has nothing to do with the theme of the book as I've approached it. So I'm going to skip that. Instead, let's look at this in light of how we've approached this book. What's going on here? Well, Paul is addressing this very delicate issue that he doesn't have a chapter and verse to point to, but he expects Philemon to obey, and he does it in the presence of himself as he's writing the letter, Timothy in verse 1, the church in Philemon's house, verse 2, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke here in 22, or yeah, 22 and 23, Aphia and Archippus in chapter 2, or I mean in verse 2, and Onesimus all over the place, and it's inspired, and it's in the canon, he's doing it in front of us. When we're looking for reconciliation over these kind of issues, we do it in the context of the body. We do this together. Brothers and sisters, we're in this together. If there is somebody aching, if there's some hurting, if there's some friction, all of us bear that burden. Now, keep in mind, this is not Matthew 28 discipline where Philemon is, is having an adulterous affair and needs to be kicked out of the church over it. It's not gone to that level. There are levels before Matthew 28 where things are just difficult. But the way Paul approaches is that he does it in the context of the body. He expects this letter to Philemon to be read to the church in his home. And so what he's saying, kind of what he did with, with uh, Philippians when he said, um, I entreat you, my, my fellow yoke mate, uh, help um, Iodia and Syntyche agree together. He's doing a similar kind of thing here. Church in Philemon's home, please help these two get along because it's Onesimus walking in with this letter. And so we need to be involved in this. Don't go solo. No, no cowboys. Um, no Josie Wales. <laughs> so what it is, is this is a work of love rather than law. It, it's, it's the body functioning together. So I used the, the example of, of um, uh, Josie Wales and, and Lone Wadi and how Josie Wales, they didn't come to that shootout and agree beforehand, okay, this is what's going to happen, and this is your role, and this is my role. They never discussed it. They just showed up, and the, the law of the West kind of kicked in, which is you got your partners back. Well, we've got something infinitely better than the law of the West. That was fluid. That could be interpreted different ways. We have the word of God, and better than that, it's written on our hearts. So, so we can have each other's back. We can support each other. We can help each other and expect great things out of this. The movie, uh, it, sad to break this to you, it's a work of fiction. It didn't really happen. As great as the lines are, whistling Dixie, it didn't happen. What we're talking about here, the snapshot of, of Christ's family, this is historical. This is real. These are actual human beings that this was involved in. God has actually worked in lives like this. It's better than fiction. It's history. Our goal, unlike Josie Wales, our goal is not to stay alive by shooting anybody who might take us in. Ours is even better. We're to come out as lambs among wolves and bring forward with the gospel to the nations. Not killing. Our weapons are not of the flesh. They're for tearing down strongholds taking every thought captive to Christ. And our role model is infinitely better than Josie Wales or Clint Eastwood. I want you to know Clint Eastwood was not necessarily the great guy. He's, he's made out of dust just like the rest of us. Our role model is Jesus Christ, who didn't come into town shooting. He came, down and he, lay, he came into town and laid down his life. The sheriff arrested him 
and falsely executed him. That's infinitely better. That's the way we should do this. So as we continue to struggle in this, this earthly existence, as we continue to wrestle through this, we need to remember that our goal here is to maintain the unity of peace in the Holy Spirit. What we're aiming for is not just so we can all get together and sing Kumbaya, but we are to labor together to bring the gospel to a world that needs it. And so as we have these differences of opinion on some social issues, that's legit. There's room for interpretation on these things. But don't forget what our goal is, what our role is. What are we supposed to do? What did Jesus tell us? I wrote it on the wall out there. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. That should override questions about our social, uh, social issues that face us and that we wrestle with. So that's why I wanted to do Philemon, is, is I want us to have a framework in which we can disagree civilly and, and with unity. And so what we're going to do next week is this is the end of Philemon. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent. Can you believe it? I thought it was just spring, and now all of a sudden we're doing Advent? So for Advent, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what does Advent look like for us? So we usually look back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints looking forward to the first coming of Christ. We're going to do Advent for us going, what about his second coming? That's the, the return that we're looking for. And so it's going to be this, this Advent series is going to be our blessed hope. And what does it look like for us to hope in Christ? And the reason, one of the reasons I picked that was because I think the other part of the answer to the struggles and the, the, the uh, trials that we're facing as evangelicals is we need more hope. We need a lot more hope. If we have put our hope in the, the occupant of the White House, we're doomed. We're, we're going to fail. We have to be able to look past that and go, there's a kingdom coming. There's a king coming. And that is our blessed hope. And so that's where we're looking. We're looking at Advent in this, these last days. And we're looking towards our blessed hope. So what I hope is that we'll instill hope through our Advent series. That, that's where we're aiming. So that's what we'll begin next week. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful that you who began a good work in us, Lord, that you who gave us the gift of repentance, gave us the gift of faith, Lord, you who have called us, who knew us in our mother's womb, that you have predestined us to the conformity to the image of Christ. You began that good work, and Lord, you promise in your word that you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus when he returns and we're set free from this body of sin and death. And in between those times, Lord, we struggle. And so, Lord, thank you for giving us this picture, giving us this family photo that you've laid in our hands to show us and demonstrate to us how can we disagree and still get along. What's the... the foundation for that? What would drive us to that? What would lead us to that? And it turns out, after looking at Philemon, it's all about you, Jesus. It's, it's all about who you are and what you're doing in your church. And so, Lord, I want to confess the sins of my people. I am from a people of unclean lips called evangelicals. And Lord, would you touch our lips with that hot coal? Lord, would you purify us and, and sanctify us? And we know you already have, Lord. You, you've done that in the work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we all would think along those lines, too. Give us that mind which is ours in Christ, that we would esteem each other as greater than ourselves. Lord, heal our broken tribe, we pray. And we ask all of these things in Christ's beautiful name.
Amen. Thank you.